So many of you know that I grew up in Southern California. My father died in March 1993, but I still get out to California for two or three days several times a year to visit my dear elderly mom. And I can almost guarantee that two things will happen within an hour of my arrival in San Diego. I will eat an In-N-Out Burger (laughs) double-double. And my mom, at some point, will hold my face in her hands and through tears, tell me, you're so much like Dad. And she's right. Physical size notwithstanding, uh, he was 5'7", And before I started shrinking, I was 6'3". My mom, by the way, is 5'2", so pictures of the three of us together are almost comical. But physical size notwithstanding, in some ways, in some ways, I'm the embodiment of my father. It's well known that I'm partial to telling jokes that only I find funny, or perhaps Jim Evans, uh, and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. He, okay, so he sent me one this week that said, uh, at the beginning of COVID, I told my baggage that we would not, I told my suitcases that we would not be traveling for a while, and now I'm dealing with emotional baggage. <laughs> Think about that for just a second. It is well known that I'm partial to telling those kinds of jokes, and habitually early riser, but the similar similarities that I've noticed between me and my father that just grow and grow over the years are both way more numerous and particular. This probably goes in the category of TMI. In fact, I know it does. But I was putting on my running shoes one morning a few years ago, and my youngest son, Craig, who, uh, by the way, as of yesterday afternoon, is engaged to Sophie... <laughs> older. Anyway, Uh, and Craig is also an Enneagram 8, so for those of you who know the Enneagram, you'll get this. Brazenly asked me, as I was putting on my running shoes, hey, Pops, did your dad have nasty toenails too? (laughs) Yes. Yes, on top of all my other glaring physical imperfections, sometime in my mid-40s, I developed toenail fungus. I know, gross. I know. And angered as I was that he'd noticed and was uncouth enough to point it so indelicately out, I took a great deal of smug satisfaction in answering dryly, yes, and so did his father. So things don't look good for you. (laughs) But as I mature, I'm seeing and hearing ever more of my father in me. And I can't help any of it. My dad had a particular dry cough that I eerily hear in myself. My dad was a crier. (laughs) My dad spoke only limited French, and my dad was an almost pathological peacemaker. But guess who else hates conflict, has already cried twice today, and also speaks limited French? This moi. (laughs) <laughs> that would be very limited French. 
Uh, I was totally kidding about the limited French, but that bit really doesn't work without that. You know, I could go on because the list of similarities is long and actually includes one or two admirable qualities, too. But none of those things, none of them, remotely makes me Bill Wishart's son. They just kind of prove to the world that I'm a chip off the old block. And while this is all very lighthearted, it's also very important because these characteristics will never allow me to forget and will help those around me see a bit of who my father really was. And all humor aside, that's a bit of the backdrop for this week's gospel reading from Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6 in which he describes characteristics, by the way, that's where we're going to be uh, looking today, so if you've got your Bible or device, you can turn there, Luke 6, beginning at verse 27, in which he describes characteristics of living that don't make us God's daughters and sons, but do show to the world that we're chips off the old block. And the Father and His kingdom that Jesus was both modeling and proclaiming was all about a glorious, uh, uproarious, absurd generosity toward others. Think of the best thing that you can do for the worst person you know and go do it. Think of what you'd really like someone to do for you and do it for them. Think of the people to whom you are tempted to be nasty and lavish generosity on them instead. Jesus' point here wasn't to give us a a, a new rule book, a list of do's and don'ts that we could check off one by one and sit back smugly satisfied at the end of a successful moral day. The point was to inculcate and illustrate an attitude of heart, a lightness of spirit in the face of the anger and cynicism, the world as it is can throw at us, and we are surrounded by anger and cynicism. And at the center of it all is the reality that animates the whole thing. We're to be like this simply because that's what our Father is like. Verses 35 and 36 say this, But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind and gracious. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Be merciful as your Father is merciful clearly implies that Jesus is treating his disciples as children of God. God is their Father. They are his children. So they should be merciful because they have a Father who's merciful. And he is astonishingly merciful. And anyone who who knows in their heart, who knows their own heart, and still goes on experience experiencing God's grace and love will agree with this. Psalm 103.10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
How can we, his forgiven children, be any less? God is also shockingly generous to all people, generous in the eyes of the stingy to a fault. He provides good things, common grace, for everyone to enjoy, the undeserving as well as the deserving. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5.45, God makes his son, not the son, his son, to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And when Christians live this way, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we show something of what the Father is like. And it's only when people discover that this is the kind of love they're dealing with that they'll have any chance of making this same way of life their own. But what about the words, love your enemies, and, and you not are, but will be the sons of the Most High? Is it conditional? Before I, I try to answer that, just a note about love. Because we, today, love is overused and undervalued at the same time, the word love. We love everything from pizza to cars to movies to music to retailers to people to God himself. And if we really love something a really, really lot, that's, those are the only ha words we have for it. We don't consciously distinguish one use of love from another, in part because our speech has become more and more informal, but it's important to be intentional about the differences. And if you just want to read a great treatise of this, um, because the, the New Testament dif differentiates four loves, and... Uh, in Greek, and C.S. Lewis, uh, in his work, The Four Loves, uh, just elaborates on this fabulously. Four loves, storge, which is affection. Um, it's kind of what healthy patriotism would be. Philea, philia, friendship or brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Eros, romantic or sexual. It's where we get the word erotic. And agape. Charity, which is used here in this passage. Um, think of Lincoln's second inaugural address with malice toward none and charity toward all was his vision of agape following the Civil War. Sometimes it's fun to just imagine what it would have been like if he had not been assassinated with that vision. Because the essence of agape is goodwill, benevolence. I told you, crying, right? Goodwill, benevolence, and willful, if not joyful, resolve toward another. Agape involves faithfulness, commitment, and an act of the will. It's distinguished from the other three loves by its higher moral nature and stronger character. It's the love beautifully described in 1 Corinthians 13. Agape is almost always used to describe the love that's of and from God. The type of love that characterizes God is not sappy, sentimental feeling, as we often hear portrayed. God loves because that's his nature. 
and the expression of his being. He loves the unlovable and the unlovely, not because we deserve to be loved or because of any excellence in us, but because it's his nature to love and he's always true to his nature. Agape is always proven by what it does. God's love is proven most clearly on the cross. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 said, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. We didn't and don't deserve such sacrifice. But it says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God's agape love is unmerited, gracious, and constantly seeking the benefit of the objects of his love. Jesus, in turn, called us to agape others, whether they're fellow believers, as in John 13, 34, or our enemies, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, and here in Luke 627. Jesus told the parable of the good Samaritans, of the Samaritans specifically as an example of agape. It's a love not based on feelings, but rather a determined act of the will, a resolve to put the welfare of others above our own, to give evermore time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. This, of course, doesn't at all come naturally to us. In fact, because of our fallenness, we're incapable of producing it, let alone sustaining it. If we're to love God, if we're to love as God does, that love, that agape can only come from the source. This is the love, says in Romans 5, 5, that's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us when we became his children. So back to the question, what about the words, love your enemies and you will be sons of the Most High? This sounds as if loving our enemies is the condition of becoming the daughters and sons of God rather than the result of being the daughters and sons of God. It's as if Jesus says on one hand, love your enemies because that's the way your father is. And on the other hand, love your enemies in order that you might be, that, that he might be your father. There's a similar problem in John 15, 8, where Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. He says this even though he's just finished saying that he is the vine and they already are the branches. The point is not that we become disciples for the first time by bearing fruit, but that we become Disciples in the sense of living out who we really are. In other words, we become in action what we already are by calling in faith. And that's what I think Jesus means in Luke to Love your enemies and you will be sons of the Most High means when you act this way, you prove to the world that you are chips off the old block. Because that's the way your father is. You demonstrate his nature. And you prove to be his children. 
So again, what you are by adoption in verse 36, namely children of the Father, is the grounds for what you are becoming in action in, verses 30, in verse 35, namely people who love their enemies. This is excruciatingly demanding, but it is what Jesus demands of his disciples. And he provides the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Now, one of the most stunning examples of this is the case of Amber Geiger, a white policewoman in Dallas who negligently killed Botham Jean, a black man. Jean, probably, but my French is limited. A black man in his own apartment. Once she said she'd entered accidentally. You probably, do you remember this story? Once she said she'd entered accidentally, believing it was hers. And how Brant Jean, the younger brother of the man that she had killed publicly and heroically, chose to forgive her for what she'd done at her sentencing. And if you want to just have all of the breath sucked out of your lungs, watch that on YouTube. She still went to prison because actions have consequences. But she went having experienced firsthand the mercy and love of the Father. Douglas Murray, an English political commentator in his book, The Madness of Crowds, comments on this event, making one of the most surprising admissions you will ever hear from a professed atheist. Many of Jesus' moral teachings can be found in other sources that predate Christianity, he wrote. But the standout exception to that is the revolutionary moral insight that Christ showed by calling on people to love and forgive their enemies. The very idea, Murray says, is so counterintuitive and world-changing, and the sheer amount of grace on display makes us marvel at moments like the one between Brant John and Amber Geiger. This tendency to marvel points out, that Murray points out, can only make sense if our conception of love is uniquely rooted in the teachings of Jesus. As he points out, the West's move away from its Judeo-Christian foundations is reflected in the rise of political polarization, cancel culture, which, by the way, happens on both sides of the political spectrum, and our general inability to love and forgive one another, or even listen to one another. If Murray's right, a world without Christianity can't come close to accounting for what makes love a morally admirable response in the face of evil. In an atheist's world, Brent John's actions would not just be meaningless, but foolish. Not avenging the murder of one's kinsmen would be a sign of weakness worthy of elimination by natural selection. And by the way, while he received all kinds of good feedback on Twitter and Instagram and other, or Facebook and other places for that, some of the responses were absolutely ungodly, awful. He was widely castigated for what he did. Because people don't understand that. They can't understand. This command to love our enemies, by the way, I just, I just parenthetically have to say this, is directed to individuals who desire to live as daughters and sons of the Most High and not to governments or nations. 
Jesus isn't prescribing foreign policy in a pluralistic society. That's an entirely different, complex, and necessary conversation. And by the way, another thing that Murray says is this, this idea, this notion of loving our enemies has long been one of the aspirational goals of, uh, of the West, and we are losing it. But anyway, the, the reason I say that is because the form of the Greek imperatives and pronouns here are all singular, not plural. You, not y'all. So what then, if we, those daughters and sons Jesus does describe here, what if we don't love our enemies? The implication here is sobering. In that case, we simply do not prove to be sons and daughters of the Most High. And Jesus addresses in Luke 6.49, just a few verses later, the real possibility that some of those who hear this commandment to love will not do it and will be like the man who built his house on sand and lost everything in the ensuing flood. But this doesn't mean that loving our enemies is what makes God our Father, any more than having the facial features of your father, or of your earthly father, makes you his child. It shows you are his child. So it is with agape. It doesn't make us children of God. It's simply the way people who are born of God are. Love your enemies. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. But this admonition to love even our enemies isn't just a good idea where we try to our best to make it happen. It's not a, a call to grit our teeth and to make a resolution to be nicer even to those who aren't nice to us on Facebook or Twitter. Rather, it is a call to live in a way contrary to our human nature, a way that's possible only as we live out of the power within us, born of the Holy Spirit. And it has very real everyday, or everyday uh, implications. I, was, I, I hadn't planned to tell this story, but um, I have a, a flight student. Some of you know that I, very part-time, I... I I uh, teach people to fly, and um, I have a flight student who has uh, persistently not followed a particular rule of putting comments in his airplane reservation, and um, I'm being held accountable for that, and I probably should be ensuring that that happens, but the other day, um, rather than it being handled in an upfront and kind way, uh, it was a, I was, uh, soundly uh, castigated in a public text thread. And I wrote a very long, pointed, and scathing uh, commentary back and then erased every word of it and just wrote, it will not happen again. Now, I did talk to the person who had sent that later and said, hey, Listen, it's, it's probably better if we just you know, handle those person to person rather than... But the only reason I was angry is because I felt foolish. It wasn't you know, anything big done to me, but m my instinct was to shoot right back. <sighs> it's so easy to do. 
But Jesus says, let us prove to be children of God. How? By being chips off the old block, loving our enemies and being merciful the way our Father is. I mean, this passage exposes the lie in the old idea, which was also around in Jesus' time as well as our own, that, our, that all religions are basically the same and that all gods are really variations of the same thing. This God is different. If you lived in a culture where everyone acted as chips off this old block, there would not be violence. There would not be revenge. There wouldn't be divisions of class or ethnicity or party. Property and possessions wouldn't be nearly as important as making sure our neighbors were doing well. Imagine if even a few people around you took Jesus seriously and lived like that. Life would be exuberant, different, astonishing. People would stare. And of course, people did stare. At Jesus, when he did it himself, the reason why crowds gathered, as Luke told us earlier, was that the, this power was flowing out of Jesus and people were being healed in all kinds of ways. His whole life was one of exuberant generosity. Jesus was, of course, speaking of what he knew, the extravagant love of the Father and living in a loving human life in response, and he lived it. To the end, because when they struck him on the cheek, ripped off his clothes uh, from his back, and, and whipped him till he was nearly dead, he went on loving and forgiving, as Luke will tell us clearly later. He was the true embodiment of his father. God's self revelation, it says in Colossians 1 that Jesus is the icon, the exact representation of God. What this means is that when we look at Jesus, we see God the Father. And we can most unmistakably see who God is in how he chose to reveal himself to us on a human cross. On the cross, we don't simply see some kind of legal transaction where Jesus pays our debt, though we do see that. We see God the Father, our Father. And that's why we love, too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.